You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. I'm excited to welcome to the program Yuri Filstinsky. Um, Yuri is a Russian-American historian. And, uh, well, you, Yuri, welcome to the program. It's quite an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Uh, Yuri has uh, authored a number of books on Russian history. According to, you know, I understand that Wikipedia is not the most reliable source, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the, Mr. Filshinsky's books include The Bolsheviks and the Left SRs in Paris, 1985, Towards a History of Our Isolation, London, and then in Moscow, republished, The Failure of the World Revolution, uh, published in London in 91 and then in Moscow in 92, blowing up Russia with uh, Alexander Litvinenko, whose name perhaps will come up yet. And finally, The Age of Assassins, um, with uh, Vladimir Perblovsky, whose, whose name doesn't sound as familiar to me as uh, some of the other names mentioned. Yuri, let me begin with this. Your last book was The Age of Assassins. Is there a chance that your next book is going to have something to do about hackers? Well, the, uh, this is not the, the last book, by the way. Um, it was published first in Britain as the Age of Assassins. It later was published in the United States as the Corporation Russia and KGB in the Age of President Putin. And it was, uh, by the way, later again republished in, in Britain uh, as uh, Putin's system or something like that. Uh, but uh, this is not the, the, the last book anyway. The last book is um, World War Three: The Battle for Ukraine. Uh, since uh, 2014, of course, we have major developments when uh, Russia invaded Crimea. So do you anticipate that uh, technology and hackers and uh, uh, some kind of a, whether it's, is this even qualified? Can this be called Cold War II, or is it something entirely different that we're looking at as far as potential threat coming from Russia uh, in the future? Well, I think it is coming. It, it is uh, started in 2008 with Georgia. It was continued through 2014 when Russia occupied Crimea and eastern Ukraine. We see that Russia constantly is raising the level of danger and uh, trying to compete with the United States in uh, uh, creating conflicts in order to deal with conflicts, in order to force the United States to deal with Russia to finish the conflict. Uh, In other words, since Russia is not able to compete economically, uh, because all they do... uh, sell the, the raw materials like oil and gas and metals to, to the world, as they try to create in conflict negotiation. And this is, um, they do uh, successfully. Uh, we see it in Ukraine, uh, where they first invaded Ukraine in order to start negotiations about uh, peace in Ukraine. We see it in Syria, where Russia intervened with the idea uh, to extend the war. Uh, and this is very different from the American idea to win the war. And uh, is, you see, the point is not whether American policy towards Syria, for example, is correct or right, it, 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 or wrong. It might be wrong. It might be wrong. 
but intentions which Americans have are completely different from intentions which Russia has. Russia invaded into Syria in order to be sure that the war will never end, will never end. And uh, uh, Americans, of course, uh, intervened with the hope that they would be able to achieve peace. Uh, the same with uh, technology. We, we do know that Russia today has more spies in the United States than the Soviet Union had uh, during the worst years of the Cold War. Uh, this is not a secret. This information was published basically officially by State Department. Everybody is upset and puzzled, puzzled with this. Russia spends a lot of money on propaganda. We see it all because... We hear Russian uh, TV, we hear Russian uh, news stations, which are broadcasting in the United States and in Europe. Uh, the rhetoric is very tough and unfair. It's uh, darker than, again, it was in the worst years of the Soviet regime. Uh, Russia is spending money to raise the level of danger and to raise the level of conflict with the United States in a hope that they will force the United States to accept Russia as an equal partner. Well, then I think that the next question that seems natural to me is, do you think that making a deal with the Russians is even something that like exists? The, you know, or is it just a continuous process where, unless I guess stopped by force, uh, Russian side will just continue pushing as far as they can? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that we deal with Russia. We deal with Russia every day the way we were dealing with the Soviet Union prior to '91, because the alternative of dealing with Russia is to fight against Russia, and no one is fighting against Russia, at least yet. You see, it's uh, it's only in Russia people think that America has the goal to destroy Russia, or to weaken Russia, or to destabilize, uh, to destabilize Russia. In reality, it, it's the opposite. Uh, America has the goal to have Russia as partner, believe it or not, even now. Even now, after 2018 Georgia, and especially after 2014 uh, in Ukraine, America still has this goal to have Russia as a partner. There well, and doesn't it have to do a lot to do with also China and the role that Russia could play in in this kind of a you know three party relationship? Well, uh, you see. Uh, each country with which we are dealing uh, now, and uh, you know, this this would include the United States, China, and Russia, are so difficult to understand, and they're so different that uh, if we add to this Russian-China, I mean, sorry, American-China talk or American-Russian talk, another site like China, I think we will complicate the situation very and in much. What case, and then in what sense do you mean partners, that the United States is looking at Russia as a partner? Uh, 
Well, uh, since 91, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were years when relations uh, between Russia and the United States were very warm. I do remember, I heard with my own, yes, because I was uh, in, in Russia during those months when President Putin, being prime minister, announced that Russia will join NATO. That's how warm and how good those relations were. Now, since, since 2000, when Putin came to power as president, things started to change uh, slowly. And by the time of 2008, I would say, by the time of uh, invasion into Georgia, uh, everything was different. Now, uh, no one actually paid attention to Georgia. This was a major mistake of American foreign uh, diplomacy, if you would ask me. And we pay for this in 2014 with the new level of invasion to, to Crimea. And uh, you see, uh, now we have constantly... Uh, small incidents when Russia is uh, flying over the borders of uh, European states or swimming near the waters or in the waters of Scandinavian states. We're actually facing a situation when a blackmail is involved and the Russian government on a very high level, this would include even President Putin, would act actually uh, blackmail the West that if if conflict would come, uh, Russia would use nuclear weapons. Uh, we are uh, facing situations when Putin, for example, visiting Finland, openly tells them that if Finland would think about joining NATO, Russia would use force against Finland, etc., etc. So Russia is trying to be respected through the force. This is very, very, I would say, uh, natural for Russia, if you ask Russians, because since uh, both you and uh, me, since we speak Russian, we know very well the expression uh, uh, being respected is being to be afraid of. Uh, or, so, or, or fear means respect. Right, or fear means respect, right, in reverse, sorry. But, uh, the, the, but the result is that Russia is uh, trying to create a situation when everybody is uh, afraid of Russia, confusing uh, respect and fear. So, we are just a few days currently before the election in the United States. And uh, we have two possible candidates. Um, you know, uh, I think there's some presumptions that can be made about who might win. But let's take a look at both uh, Mr. Trump and uh, Mrs. Clinton as far as their relationship with Russia. Um, you have such a unique uh, perspective. I just really appreciate it. And once again, you're listening to Rashkin Report. This is Yuri Rashkin. And uh, my guest is Russian-American historian uh, Yuri Filshtinsky. Uh, in uh, Yuri, as, uh, as, as, I, as I have, but much earlier, left Soviet Union and then actually came back and uh, 
again, according to Wikipedia, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, defended your uh, doctorate back in Russia. You kind of, you know, re did it again um, and uh, thus became the first non-Russian citizen to earn a doctorate from a Russian university. Um, so uh, you have kind of a, I think, a good um, perspective, both being grounded in, in the American side and the Russian side. Um, how do you see uh, the relationship between Trump and uh, Putin or Clinton and Putin um, as far as Russian-American relations? Well, uh, by the way, this happened in 92 or 93 when the Russian Academy of Science gave me the decree of uh, doctor of, of um, history. I guess now this would never happen because I have a lot of difficulties now to publish my books in and my articles in, in Russia. But uh, speaking about current relations, we do know, of course, that they're very painful and very nervous this time. This is not how this always was for those who live here for many years. Uh, we, of course, do remember that this was not the same every four years. But uh, I'm slightly confused with the fact that during all this campaign, with a very uh, aggressive uh, rhetoric, especially when you listen to Donald Trump, uh, you do not hear a single critical word relation to Putin or uh, Russia, meaning Russian foreign policy. This is very I think I think Donald Trump has made more fun of his wife than of Mr. Putin. Well, that that's that's. True, and this this is very strange uh, for me because indeed this is very damaging for Trump, and this is so obvious that this is uh, damaging for Trump. That the easiest way out of this um, tricky situation would be to start to criticize Putin, like say, "Oh, I do not like Putin. I have a lot of difficulties with Russian foreign policy, etc., etc." We do not hear this, and this puzzles me. This puzzles me a lot because this unfortunately leads to a certain conclusion, and there is nothing what I may do with myself. But this leads me to a conclusion that there is a certain agreement uh, between uh, Trump and uh, the Russian government or President Putin, because there is no other explanation why we do not hear a single word of criticism related to Putin towards Trump, which I, once again, I repeat, it's kind of self-damaging for Trump not to criticize Russia. And I do not like uh, his, uh, you know, position towards NATO, of course. I think this is very crucial for the United States to support NATO and to be active partner of NATO. I do understand that this costs money, but the alternative is uh, unfortunately more uh, dangerous and more expensive because we do know that the United States uh, were not involved in Europe prior to the First World War, and they were not involved in European affairs prior to the Second World War, and in both cases we had world wars as a result. Uh, Europe is not able, this sounds 
you know, strange and primitive, but that's what it is. Europe is not able to live in peace by itself. Uh, the only uh, reason why Europe is in peace uh, was the American influence uh, in over, you know, European foreign policy and European affairs. And if you... Uh, destroy NATO, if America withdraw from Europe because it's expensive, and this is, you know, uh, Trump is taking a very business-like approach towards foreign policy, at the end we are going to pay more because we know that the moment NATO is weakened or the moment NATO is dissolved, Russia would take control over major European states, territories which partially belonged to the Soviet Union prior to 91, and who knows, maybe belonged to the Russian Empire prior to 1917. Putin declared his uh, ambitions uh, in 2008, in 2014. He uh, stated many times, quite openly, by the way, I have to say that Putin is very honest in his uh, desires and in his policy, he's openly saying what he is planning to do. And whether we call this uh, plans, uh, you know, the recreation of Soviet Union or the creation of a new kind of Russian Empire or a Russian world, this doesn't really matter. What is matter that Putin is looking at the world in a very simple way that there are territories which should be part of this new Russia. And every time we are talking about Russian policy, we are actually talking about Russia, uh, the Russian state, which is enlarging its territory. Either this is uh, South Ossetia, or, or Crimea, or Eastern uh, Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's working in one direction. Russia is taking territory after territory. And this never happened in Europe since 1995. Now, uh, Trump said that uh, if he and Putin got along, what would be so bad about that? That would be so bad, he says. Um, and uh, I think there's a fair number of people out there that do think that why shouldn't we get along with Russia? Well, so, uh, what would that mean? It's it's would be, you know, brilliant and very good if everybody would live in peace. Uh, the problem is uh, that uh, Putin is not ready to live in peace unless his conditions are met. And we know what his conditions are. His conditions are that Russia is recognized as an equal partner in foreign policy. And for Putin, this means that basically Russia is allowed to do whatever it feels necessary to do. And if Russia feels necessary to invade Georgia, Russia may invade Georgia. If Russia feels necessary to invade Ukraine and unite Ukraine with the Russian Federation, then Ukraine should be part of the Russian Federation. The same about Pridnistrovia or Trieste uh, district. Uh, the same is about the Baltic states. Uh, there are people in Russia, and we are talking not about 
common people on the street. We are talking about uh, high-level Russian officials who are mentioning that Finland belonged to the Russian Empire. We even talking about people who are mentioning that Alaska once belonged to to the to the Russian Empire. So there is my point is that unfortunately there is no end to the foreign ambitions of the uh, current Russian government. And if you remember, uh, in March of 2014, when Russia invaded uh, Crimea and occupied. Crimea quite quickly without basically a, a single uh, short fight. Well, indeed, just one person was killed, uh, technically speaking. Uh, the, everybody, everybody was ready to accept the fact that Crimea would belong to to Russia. And from different angles of the world, uh, both in the United States and in Europe, we heard the same message sent to Putin uh, from the highest level, from the government of European countries and the United States uh, on a, from a very high level, just tell us that this is the end of foreign ambitions uh, of the Russian state, and we will continue to live as we lived before. Indeed, Putin uh, gave his famous speech that, uh, you know, this, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union is a major personal and geopolitical tragedy for him, and he is starting to correct mistakes made in 91. So there is no end of those ambitions. Uh, it's, not, it's not that Americans do not want to live in peace in Russia. Americans would like to live in peace with Russia. But the price which Putin is asking for this has uh, no limit. And uh, here we, we have to uh, probably come back to a question about difference between Clinton and Trump. At least in uh, a rhetoric when we deal with, uh, you know, programs which are announced. Uh, Trump, as I noticed, didn't say a single uh, bad word about Putin, and he does it for, for a reason. Uh, we may guess what, his, guess what his reasons are, but I'm sure he has his reasons not to, not to criticize uh, Russia and Putin. Uh, Clinton, as we remember, when Russia invaded uh, Crimea, and I do not want to say that I'm, you know, huge fan of uh, Clinton and her foreign policy when she was Secretary of State. Nevertheless, she did compare Stalin, uh, Putin to Hitler. Uh, she uh, did mention that this is the first, uh, you know, invasion of a European state by another uh, major European uh, state uh, since 2000, uh, since 1945. So, uh, you know, Clinton is a traditional, uh, you know, traditional American bureaucrat uh, who is uh, going to conduct traditional American uh, foreign policy. And this foreign policy demands... Uh, you know, participation in the world affairs. Uh, this foreign policy does not uh, conclude that if the project is expensive, we do not deal with it. 
or that if if Europe would like to have not NATO, they have to pay for this, or that America should withdraw from Middle East because it's too expensive and too dangerous. It is too expensive. It is too dangerous. But this is the difference uh, between uh, the United States being the great world power and uh, you know middle level. Uh, European or any other state which exists in the world and try to stay neutral and try not to participate in those conflicts because this is dangerous, because this is expensive and because this is a role which typically belongs to the great powers. So I, I, I think with, with Clinton uh, we, we will see what we usually see, whether we like it or not. Um, and once again, uh, there is a, a lot of room for criticism. Uh, what uh, what um, Obama was doing during these eight years and what, what Americans are doing or not doing in relations to other countries and regimes. But at least uh, with Clinton, I think we know what we may expect or will not expect. Uh, with Trump, we, we do not know what we are risking. Uh, and uh, I think I think this might be dangerous uh, in the end. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. My guest today is Yuri Filshtinsky, a Russian-American historian. Um, Yuri, then, uh, with the, the situation as you described, um, I guess I, I will say, make a, a judgment call that, in my opinion, uh, the West has its own problems and is hoping that the Russian people will take care of things at home, which doesn't seem to be happening, which, in my opinion, is that Russian people are just really do not work together enough uh, to to be able to create change. However, there is one, at least some consistency that I'm seeing on the part of this Russian well, opposition, uh, disorganized as it is, is to push for the idea of greater sanctions that uh, West and especially United States should impose on Russia. What is your thoughts on the idea of sanctions or is there a different approach that you would recommend that would effectively deal with uh, with uh, Putin's regime? Well, uh, of course, I am for sanctions if we are choosing between yes or no. But uh, unfortunately, this is uh, too little too late. Uh, you know, if, uh, if we would start with sanctions in 2008 after invasion of Georgia, the invasion of Crimea probably would never take place. If we would be tough with Russia in March of 2014, after invasion of Crimea, the invasion of eastern Ukraine would never take place. But you see, as I mentioned, we were quiet after 2008, and we basically accepted the uh, annexation of Crimea in March of 2014. And then Putin, and this should be expected, I mean, this was not a surprise at all, uh, decided that this is a sign that he could proceed further. And the Russian army was concentrated, uh, as we 
member, of course, uh, in April, uh, May, along the uh, Russian-Ukrainian border and started invasion of Ukraine, uh, eastern Ukraine. Now, at that point, uh, Europe decided that this is enough. And at that point, Europe declared sanctions and America became very tough in rhetoric. And basically, people were mentioning the war which is about to start. Uh, probably because of this, not because of the result of those sanctions, uh, Putin stopped and he didn't proceed with the invasion of uh, Ukraine as a state and Ukraine was, you know, be able to survive the crisis. We do know that in April, May, we do remember this, a Russian uh, army was conducting exercises all over Russia, like every second day, a Russian uh, fleet and Russian air force was actively uh, trying uh, to fly over the border, borders of the European states and NATO states, uh, including Great Britain, including the United States. Uh, Putin, as a you know small child, was testing the, the limits, and when he realized that those limits are tested, and Russia probably is facing the risk of starting. Uh, you know, full-scale war with NATO, they decided to stop. And at one point, you know, they, instead of uh, invading Ukraine, ironically, they invaded uh, Syria and started to develop new conflict with uh, NATO in Syria. And this conflict, very successfully for Russia, I have to say, uh, continues until uh, now. The major goal, again, is not to allow this war to end. And in, in this sense, our, our Russian policy towards Syria uh, is uh, victorious. Um, Yuri, I, I guess I would have to disagree, and but I suppose I'm, that's okay. That's uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Especially now during this campaign. You know, right, do exactly. Not find too many people who would agree on something. It's much easier to find people who disagree. Well, no, I, I think in general I'm agreeing with you, but in this particular instance, it seems to me that uh, Syria, the Syria campaign may have had some successes and it showed that dropping bombs kills people um, and Russia was successful in doing that in uh, Chechnya and Grozny uh, during that war, but it doesn't seem to really work as well on a world stage where there's other organizations and stakeholders and players involved and it seems that Russia and Putin are looking just more well, Kremlin and Putin is solidifying its status as war criminals between what they did in uh, Syria and also with the downing of the Boeing plane over Ukraine, it's kind of solidifying a really not a good image that I don't know that Putin can is, is, is able to fix. Well, unfortunately, and here's the problem, he does not have to fix it. Uh, he's still flying to other countries. He's still invited for international negotiations, for international meetings. He's still friendly, at least, uh, you know, publicly with leaders of the other states. So the, the isolation which we hope uh, would be res would be result of Russian foreign policy did not take 
place. I mean, in after invasion of Ukraine in 2014, we hoped that the level of insulation of Russian officials abroad would become, uh, you know, very, very open, especially, for example, after the British court was brave enough to announce Mr. Putin to be part of the uh, this major operation to, to kill a British citizen Litvinenko in London with nuclear poisoning. But even this didn't help, you see, and, and this is the problem. That's why Putin does not feel that he has to be, you know, nice to, to, to the Western world. Uh, he, they do believe in force. Uh, you mentioned the, the two Chechen wars, uh, and this is precisely the, the problem. Uh, what uh, Russia indicated to, to the whole world during those two Chechen wars, uh, they, they, they're, not to, to lose, they're not afraid to lose uh, people and they're not afraid to kill people. And uh, Russia was losing, you know, dozens of thousands of their own soldiers and killing actually, do, killing dozens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Chechens. So uh, Russia is not afraid to kill. And we see it in, in Syria as well. Uh, Russia is, basically does not care how many people uh, they would have to kill uh, on, on the way to quote-unquote victory. And there is nothing what the world uh, could do. And this, when I'm saying uh, that uh, Russian policy in, in Syria is successful, I measure success not uh, by the amount of peaceful negotiations or agreements, I'm measuring it for Russia by their ability, by its ability uh, to to stop the peace process in Syria and to help Sadat to uh, keep power because we know that it's probably because of Russia he's still in power. I doubt he would be able to survive without the assistance of the Russian army. So, uh, that's 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 what's happening once again. But, but don't you feel that at, don't you feel that at some point Putin can become the next Gaddafi? Uh, Putin or, or, or Sadat <laughs> or Assad? Well, sorry, <laughs> all of them. All of them. Well, you see, uh, this is I would say complicated, and uh, I know many people. Uh, some of them are famous. Uh, with whom I had talks during all these years, who usually would ask me a question, well, how long do you think Putin would be able to survive? And my answer, since 2000, uh, I do remember this, we had this conversation very often with Berezovsky, by the way. Since 2000, I was trying to, uh, to tell and to explain that Putin is uh, very real and he is there for a very long time. And I have my uh, reasoning for, for this. You see, Putin came to power not as dictator. And even now, I do not consider him to be a dictator like Hitler, like Mussolini, like Stalin. Uh, Putin came to power on behalf of a very powerful structure. The name of the structure was known those years as KGB, now it is known as the FSB. But Putin is ruling Russia on behalf 
of a huge corporation, and the name of this corporation is the FSB. And uh, they control Russia quite successfully, basically everything. They control economy, they control bank system, uh, they control elections, uh, there is no freedom of press, the opposition are not uh, just uh, not united, but it, it's not united for a reason. It's not united because the FSB effectively doesn't allow it to be united. When uh, some leaders become very dangerous, like Boris Nipsov, they kill them. So it's it, the system is very effective. Uh, it's managed to, unlike during the Soviet years when KGB existed within the close borders of the Soviet, Soviet state and without market economy, the current FSB, which rules Russia, managed to keep the borders open uh, to have market economy. And uh, this basically allowed, of course, those, this allows those people who hate regime just to leave Russia because there is more chances, of course, to emigrate than to fight against the regime. Uh, those who do not want to, to leave Russia and would like to be actively, you know, fight, would like actively to fight against the regime, like Nemtsov are killed. Uh, so it's, I do not see any reason for, for this system to collapse very soon. The elections which are going to take place in 2018, I'm sure Putin would win very easily. Um, he is trying, he is trying nevertheless, uh, all the way to these elections of 2018, uh, to, to clean the, the road for him so those elections are going to be a formality and not only he's killing people like Boris Nemtsov who might try to compete with him for the presidency but he's also taking uh, down uh, you know fires replacing uh, his major friends from KGB like uh, General Viktor Ivanov or General Sergei Ivanov, who was until recently uh, in charge of the administration of the president. This is the second powerful position in the Russian government after president, the position of the president. Uh, he, at the same time, he's creating National Guards, a, a new structure which is probably going to be something like personal military, you know, Institute uh, under the leadership of personally the president of Russia. So he's uh, working uh, quite hard to be sure that no enemies are going to be met on this road to, to elections uh, of 2018. Not speaking of the fact that the uh, well, if the elections are rigged somewhere, this is definitely in Russia, not in the United States. Uh, so nothing is going to, uh, you know, be dangerous for, for Putin in the near future, unless he will go for the open military conflict with the United States. Uh, then of, this will backfire, of course. Well, then I would um, 
<clears throat> I would like to, I guess, summarize first, because I wanted to make sure that I got your answer to this question, and that is what to do about Russia. And you said the sanctions are too little, too late. So does it mean that sanctions, yes, but then also the, the and emphasis should be on strengthening NATO? Well, uh, as, as usual, uh, if first of all, uh, you have to have a political program, uh, meaning that the United States should understand and should formulate what actually they would like to see in Russia uh, or to do with Russia. So far, this program doesn't exist. Uh, you know probably quite well that uh, in Washington, D.C., if you ever talk to people, you will find that many of them think that will actually, you know, should just... Uh, give up to Russia as much as it's necessary to give up in order to be friends with Russia because it's expensive not to be friendly with Russia. Uh, or you will find more people probably in, in Pentagon who would say that Russia is strategic enemy and we should uh, increase uh, funding of NATO and we should uh, increase uh, the army. And by the way, this is happening. You know, the result of 2014 invasion of Crimea and Ukraine uh, uh, is that uh, the United States budget toward net in Europe was tripled. America is spending more money. America is deploying more troops in, uh, in Europe. So this is happening. And this is happening because Russia is becoming very, very aggressive. But in the beginning, you have to understand what you actually would like to, to do with Putin regime. And by the way, speaking about all this uh, pre-election rhetoric, we didn't hear anybody saying about the regime of Russia, which should be changed because it's dangerous for the world. It is dangerous for the world, but no one is thinking about doing something in order to change it. Now, if you really want to change the regime of in Russia, it is very, very simple. I mean, if you really want to introduce tough sanctions or any sanctions, all you need to do is to start to sell liquid uh, gas to, to Europe and decrease European uh, dependency on Russian gas. Uh, there are a lot of instruments in the United States which the United States has in its power to, to uh, you know, to decrease prices for oil if this actually is necessary. And by doing this, of course, killing the Russians' uh, ability to use, uh, you know, to, do, to earn more money, spending more money for, for uh, military programs, what is happening in Russia. By the way, Russia is increasing military budget. And, and if we look at prices of oil and compare them with the uh, activity of the Russian foreign, foreign policy, we will see that every time oil goes higher than $100 per barrel, Russia is invade, invades another country. This happens in 2008 when they invaded Georgia. This too happened in 2014 when they invaded Ukraine. In both cases, prices for oil were dramatically high, and Russia was earning a lot of 
uh, extra money for its budget. So you know, this time, this reminds me of a I, have a I have a friend who every time he has money, he gets a tattoo. And, well, uh, you know, I had I had money here, I had money there. So every time the get the oil price goes to over a hundred dollars, Russia invades, and that's something to remember. Well, it it is very easy to remember. In other words, every time Russia has money, it's uh, using it uh, to enlarge uh, the empire, and that's that's unfortunately the only the only conclusion which I would draw if I'm in Washington D.C. that uh, we actually should be sure that uh, Russia is not getting uh, a lot of money or not enough of money for for both oil and gas and those prices are easily to control in today's world especially prices for gas but once again no one in washington dc and i repeat no one has an idea to fight russia or to weaken russia no one has this agenda Uh, everybody would like to see russia as a peaceful partner, which helps the United States and the rest of the world to deal with other major topics. And those major topics, as we all know, would obviously include fighting against international uh, Muslim terrorism. The other question is whether Russia indeed is involved in provoking this Muslim terrorism. But this is a completely uh, separate and and very difficult uh, topic. Okay, so I was wrong. It's not China. It's the international terrorism. All well, right. I would say it's not China. You see, uh, you see, China. We are quote unquote Europeans. I do not know what does this say uh, to to about us. But this probably tells us that we do not really understand China. And we probably have a lot of difficulties to understand China. Now, from the United States or from Europe, China looks as if it's a united you know, nation of Chinese people who are ready to take the world. I, I'm not sure that this is precisely the case. From, first, of all, first of all, China, the modern China, is a very young state. Uh, It was created actually, you know, after the Second World War. Uh, Then China, of course, uh, Chinese people look the same for us, but indeed they speak different languages. And China is a kind of federation or an empire. And all empires, as we know, have tendency you know, to, to, to destroy itself from time to time. Then from the experience which we see uh, when we deal with Chinese foreign policy, uh, we see that unlike the Soviet Union, or unlike Russia, which would try to use any opportunity to take another state or to take another territory, uh, Chinese actually do not do not uh, uh, see their advantages, you know, through, through extension of the territory. We, we see that they were waiting 100 years uh, before they peacefully received back Hong Kong. We see that they never tried to occupy uh, Taiwan, although Taiwan is definitely a Chinese territory, 
much more uh, Chinese and Crimea is Russian. So I would be very careful um, thinking that Chinese, well, we do have, unfortunately, I have to say, we do have, unfortunately, a case of open aggression, which America recognized as an open uh, aggression, uh, is the building of artificial island uh, is uh, the, in the um, uh, South China Sea. Uh, this is the fact, and this is very sad fact for, for the American foreign policy, and in the recent uh, manual of NATO, which is a kind of simple program, who is friend and who is not, uh, three, uh, three whatever institutions are named as strategic enemies of the United States. Uh, international terrorism and ISIS, Russia because of occupation of uh, eastern Ukraine and Crimea, and China because of the construction of the artificial island with the goal to control the, you know, the sea around it. So, uh, it's, it's not that we are illusional uh, about China, but I never believe, uh, never believed and do not believe now in a Russian Chinese union against whatever, including the United right. States. Okay. Uh, this, uh, this I do not see, this I do not buy. I know that there are a lot of, you know, specialists who, who are afraid um, precisely of this. And recently, as we know, the president of uh, Indonesia, I believe, announced that that's precisely what they are going to build, a union of three countries against the United uh, Phil- States. Philippines, I believe. I Philippines, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. Sorry, sorry yeah. Philippines, of course. You know, this tells, this actually confirms our my my statement that being a European, I make this, you know, stupid, right. stupid mistake. No, this is this is uh, perfectly fine. Uh, let me ask you then this in, in conclusion uh, to kind of maybe uh, the, this is very interesting and then very much appreciate your time, Yuri. Um, we know from watching, uh, having watched Soviet Union, how much uh, they were involved in fostering. Uh, these totalitarian regimes around the world, and as well as uh, you know, groups uh, that were fighting and, and causing all sorts of problems all over the world, you know how much support in various forms came from Soviet Union, um, and, and in part I'm you know so. But <clears throat> how? What about just uh, if we cha- if the regime in Russia changes, wouldn't that have a domino effect? of addressing all these uh, extremists that have been enjoying Russian support in Europe and perhaps elsewhere. Uh, then maybe, maybe you know, we need to go rather than uh, deal with, with each symptom, uh, look at the, at the main cause of the situation, which is funding, uh, albeit gas and oil funded funding for all of these extremists. Well, uh, we mentioned uh, that Russia today has more spies all over the world than the Soviet Union was allowed itself to uh, to to have. Uh, this is partially because Russia, uh, b- being a part of market market economy, has much more money now to spend to. Uh, undermined the, the, the rest of the world and that's that's what they they do uh, we we see it in the United States 
we see through the creation of uh, dozens, uh, maybe even hundreds of organizations which are sponsored by the Russian government abroad with the idea that those organizations would be, uh, you know, a kind of pro-Russian instruments which uh, sooner or later might be used by the uh, Russian government. Uh, we do know, in other words, that Russia is using money as a very powerful uh, instrument. Unfortunately, uh, it's not that they do it only secretly. They do it quite openly. And the, the uh, well-known case would be, for example, the case of former consular of Germany, Schroeder, who is officially getting money from Gazprom, which is a Russian state company, uh, openly, uh, you know, working for the Russian interests and for the Russian government. And uh, you see, uh, that's where the problem is. Unless you declare that Russia is a strategic enemy or ideological enemy or propagandistic enemy. It seems to be that taking money from Russia, whether we're talking about uh, political leaders of foreign countries or political institutions like uh, political parties in France, for example, uh, it seems to be fine. There there is no law, uh, technically, which uh, doesn't allow you to take money from the Russian government uh, because uh, because it's it's not prohibited. It's not prohibited because uh, no one says the Russian government is an enemy, and that so this is a circle. This is a very uh, there is of course a fine uh, you know border and line uh, which uh, people try not to cross otherwise they would become spies uh, in, uh, would be seen as spies in their native countries but unfortunately you know in contemporary world even the spine uh, definition of spine change and this has a lot to do with the internet and with open sources and with WikiLeaks and with ability of other people to you know ruin another computers and steal in, uh, emails so uh, punishments change uh, we we remember that story when uh, 10 russian spies were illegals actually were arrested in uh, in the United States and uh, prior to ninety one all of them would end in jail and probably would be you know servicing long long sentences uh, but now they just sent back to to Russia actually because even Americans do not want to make a big deal about these ten spies arrested in one day uh there are many spies. What are you going to do with them? I mean, do you arrest them, send them back? Do you arrest them, put to uh, sentence them? It's very difficult to prove that they were spying. They would probably indicate that what they were doing, just, you know, reading the Internet. So it's uh, the, the, today's world is very much different from the world 
where we were living 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And this is the problem. We, we look differently at things. And that's, that's why uh, even Russia is seen differently today. Because as I mentioned, not too many people would agree that Russia is an enemy or a lot of politicians would be very careful to say that Russia is an enemy. Uh, they would say that, well, Russia is a difficult partner and we hope that Russia would become a friend uh, one day. And we all hope that Russia may become a friend one day. That, but I'm afraid that for this, uh, we have to see the change of regime in Russia. On that note, uh, Yuri Fuschinski, thank you so much for being on Rashkin Report. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.